Welcome to the Rocky Messages Podcast. Rocky is a gathering of people that want to know Jesus and love like Him. If you hear something today that you'd like to know more about, you should check out our other podcast, Rocky Unscripted, where we take a topic and through conversation and study, we go a little bit deeper. And right now, let's join today's message. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat at both campuses. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys here today. Like I, I walked, I got up this morning, I got my car, I, I cruise over to the Fred campus and I'm just saying it was a little slick out there. And I was like, I wonder how many people are actually going to show up today. And man, you guys, both campuses, you're here. And uh, so let's thank God for that. And we've got the opportunity for all of you who are online too. So it's good to have you joining us. I want you to get to John chapter four. We've been in this series called Jesus, who is he? And I just want to start with asking you a question. I want you just to kind of, you don't have to close your eyes, but I want you just to think if you were to picture the face of Jesus in your mind, what would you see? Now think about that for a moment. If, if you were to just get a picture of the face of Jesus in your mind, what would you see? Here's what I guarantee. It would be a different picture for every single one of you. And I'll show you what I mean. If I was to ask you right now at both campuses or watching online, if I were to ask you to picture Taylor Swift in your mind, you would all get just about the same picture, right? I mean, she's, she's only just like about the most famous singer-songwriter in the world, right? You probably would get a picture with a Chiefs jersey on. Somebody give me a boo on that, right? Yeah. Chiefs jersey on, watching her guy, Travis Kelsey, right, at a football game in the Super Bowl again, right? But you would have a picture because you've seen so many pictures of Taylor Swift that you would say, I know exactly what she looks like. Now, if I were to ask you, if you get a little more serious, and I would say, hey, how about... Picture Mother Teresa in your mind. I'm telling you, just everybody, like most everybody would get just about the same picture, that tiny, tiny little lady with the weathered face, the wrinkles, with the, with the nun outfit on and, and, and working with the poor in Calcutta. I mean, we just get this picture of this super holy, super sacrificial lady. And it's pretty much the same picture because you've all seen pictures of her before. Now, if I were to say Abraham Lincoln, none of you have ever, ever met Abraham Lincoln or Mother Teresa, but you get the same picture of Abraham Lincoln of the tall, thin, bearded president, right? I mean, probably the greatest president in our history. But you get a picture because you've all seen the same pictures before, so you say, that's what Abraham Lincoln looks like. If you were to picture Jesus, what picture do you get? And I would guarantee you that just about every picture in your mind is going to be different than someone else's picture. Because here's the thing. None of us have seen a picture of Jesus. None of us have seen an actual portrait. Now, we've seen portraits. Like if you think of the earliest known portraits or depictions of Jesus, they were, they were by artists. And I'll show you a couple. This one is from a monastery in Argentina. It's one of the most famous paintings of Jesus it's called The Sacred Heart of Jesus. And I'm telling you, that's not real helpful. <laughs> like when you look at that, that's kind of like pasty white. When, when did, was Jesus ever, his skin color, white, first of all? And second of all, he just looks kind of spiritual, ethereal. Like, I don't even know if I could relate to that guy. So you go on and you just capture another one. You go to this one. This one's from a monastery in Egypt. It's from a Greek Orthodox church that has all kinds of icons and their pictures are very weird, non-relatable. And you look at that picture and you say, is that even a guy I could relate to? 
No, then you take probably the most famous picture of Jesus, one of the most famous, Leonardo da Vinci, it's the Last Supper. Zoomed in, it's the Last Supper. And you look at that Jesus, and he looks purified, looks holy, looks otherworldly, looks like he's never had dirt under his fingernails, looks like he'd never worked a day in his life. He looks like the guy, that does not look helpful to me. That looks like six years ago when I was sitting in a marriage counseling office with my wife in downtown Longmont, and we're at the moment just not even talking to each other, and we're struggling, and I've shared a bit about that before, that does not look like the guy I'm turning to to say he can help me right now. Four years ago, January 2nd, my wife calls me up and says, we got news back from the doctor, and the diagnosis is cancer. That does not look like the guy that she's turning to and saying, that guy can help me with my problems. And you sit here today because every single person in this Frederick campus, every single person at Niwak campus, you're sitting there online, whenever you're watching this, every single one of us has stuff. And you sit there and you can see a picture clearly in your mind of so many people, but you capture this picture of Jesus and you're like, what does that guy really look like? And is that a guy I can actually connect with that could really, really help me in the midst of my problems? You see, I think the reason that most of us have a difficulty thinking about this idea that you can have a relationship with Jesus is because we can't see him. It's because the pictures that most of us have in our mind is that kind of pure, holy picture that Jesus has never gotten dirty in my kind of life. So how could he know how to help me in the life that I have? We're jumping in this series, and that's exactly why we're jumping in this series and asking the question, Jesus, who is he? Because we would do a lot better. Like, we would be a lot better off if we would actually just take the words of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they were the eyewitnesses who actually walked with Jesus and says, here's the Jesus I saw. And the Jesus that you grab off the pages of Scripture If you'll actually get in and read what Matthew wrote, that he walked with him, what John wrote, that he walked with him and saw, he writes about a Jesus who did get his hands dirty. He writes about a Jesus who was a hardworking man. He was a carpenter. He writes about a Jesus who experienced death, who experienced mourning, who experienced difficulty, and who experienced pain. The gospel writers talk about Jesus and give us this picture. They call him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Like God not above us. God not somewhere around us. God not the one who created us, but the God who loved us and saw the difficulty we were in and said, I must enmesh myself within the same difficulty. And so he came into our world and he got his hands dirty and he got bloody, and he got messy, and he got right into the difficulty of broken dreams and broken people just like us. I want you to look at John chapter four. John chapter four gives us a picture just after John three, obviously after John three, but John three last week I talked about a guy named Nicodemus who was kind of the pure and holy like perfect guy. He was the religious leader and Jesus connected with him and said, hey, you." No matter how good you are, you still have to be born again. John chapter 4, Jesus connects it with a person that's totally opposite of Nicodemus. 
And John writes these two pieces just for each and every one of us, no matter where we are on our journey. John 20, verse 31, he says, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life in his name. That he might just pull you a little bit up out of the darkness, a little bit up out of the mess, and he might give you life that you've actually been looking for. John chapter 4, starting verse 4, says, now Jesus, now he or Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus was with his disciples. They were going south toward Jerusalem. It was a long journey, still about 30 miles to go until Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now let's stop right there. Understand, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Normal Jewish route was around Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans. There was a reason for that. We won't go into all of it. Just understand they considered them half-breeds. They had Jewish bloodlines, but they had intermarried with some of the countries that had exiled the Jews, coming in and taken over the Israelites, taking them back to their countries, and they had intermarried with them. These were the descendants of these people who did what God told them not to do. He said, don't intermarry with these people because what will happen, he said, I don't care about the bloodlines. What I care about is the spiritual line. Because if you intermarry with them, you will begin to worship their gods and you will lose connection with me. And so these people did, and the Jews looked at them and they hated them. They called them all kinds of racial slurs and racial names. And you can understand because we have some racial history. Think of that history just as difficult. Here's how bad it was. Jews would look at Samaritans, they would pray to God and they would pray that God would not answer their prayers and God would not forgive their sin. That is a special kind of hatred right there. I mean, you would say, hey, God, forgive my sin, but don't forgive hers. God, forgive my sin, but, but don't forgive his. That's the kind of hatred we're talking about. Jesus did not have to go around Samaria. Jesus was compelled to go through Samaria. Because Jesus was the kind of guy that would break the social and political lines, even if he had to, just to meet somebody where they were and have a conversation that would change your life. In verse five, it says this, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if we picture Jesus that way. I, I kind of picture Jesus teleporting from place to place. You know? It's like he just kind of shows up, and says, God, I wanna, I wanna head to Jerusalem, I wanna head, it's like, he's right there. This says Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down, looked at his disciples, and said, guys, I don't, I'm exhausted. Like, I, don't, I don't think I can go anymore. Like, guys, I, I got to sit down. You guys go into town, get some food. I've got to take a break. And that ought to resonate with you. I know it does with me. It makes it more relatable. It's not that picture up there. It's the picture of a Jesus who understands the world that we live in. It says, when the Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There again, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, it's a double here. It's a double thing. It's, she's a Samaritan, so she's surprised. Why are you a Jew talking to me? But she's also a woman. Jewish men would not talk to women in public, not even their wives. And so she looks at Jesus and she's like, how could you, like, a Jew wouldn't even touch a Samaritan. You're going to ask to drink from the same well, the same water, the same cup that I'm drinking from? How could you ask me a Samaritan, and how could you ask me a woman? There's something different about this man. 
Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That idea of living water was not the idea of a well. It was not the idea of a cistern, water that sat. It was the idea of running water. It was a stream or a river. She says to him, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? Understand, Jacob was a big deal in Israel's history. And we're talking about like up there with Moses, up there with Abraham, probably like a notch below, but I mean, he's one of the Jewish patriarchs, one of the most famous, and he dug this well. This well is actually dug through rock. It's 100 feet deep. Jacob, Jacob dug it like 100 feet deep, the work that it took, and he tapped into an underwater spring. I mean, this spring, like Jacob's well at the time, it was pure, it was as pure and as clean and as cool a water as you could get. And this woman looks at Jesus and she's like, Jacob's a big deal. This water's the best around. And you're saying you can do better? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. The woman looks at Jesus first and she's like, you're, you're a bigger deal than Jacob? Like, you know some like spring somewhere that's just better water and plus I come to this, thing, this place at noon because I don't want to come with the other ladies because I got stuff going on in my life and I don't want them to know. And so if you know another place, you just tell me what that water is and I'll go there. Can you do better than our father Jacob? And Jesus looks at her and audaciously just says, I can do a lot better. Like you drink my water, you can keep drinking the water of your ancestors. You, you can keep drinking the water of your history, but you'll have to keep drinking. Like you'll be thirsty again. It's never going to quench your thirst. And she's thinking, my thirst. I keep carrying this water jug out here. I keep having to carry this water back. I, man, if, this, if I can find water that I can tap into it, he's saying, you'll never have to thirst again spiritually. You tap into the living water that I'm giving you, you will never be thirsty Again, and understand what happens here. Like this woman is like, I'm in. Like you and I look at this picture of Jesus and we're going, Jesus, she, she said yes. Like we understand what he's talking about. This is a spiritual conversation, not, not a water conversation. This is a spiritual conversation. And so we understand that what Jesus is doing right here is he's witnessing to this woman. He's proclaiming the gospel to this woman. He's getting there and she gave him a Yes. Like around this place, here's what would happen. We'd be like, man, that is fantastic. Let me tell you just a little bit more about how we respond to Jesus. And, and, and let's schedule your baptism. Like which service you want to be baptized in? Who do you want to baptize you? Like you're going to get baptized. We're going to go out to that wall out there in the lobbies, the one wall. And you get to screw a light bulb in. And man, it's exciting. Then we're going to get you just attached to a small group and get you some friends around this place. I mean, we're looking at Jesus and going, she gave you a yes. Go with it. But Jesus is a little different. And Jesus doesn't go with it. You ever been in the middle of an awkward or a conversation and all of a sudden somebody says something really awkward, like off the map, and you're going, what, what are you doing? 
This woman says, I'm in. If you're sitting in a coffee shop and you're listening to this conversation with Jesus and the woman, you're looking at Jesus and going, stop. (laughs) Just take the yes. Like, just take the yes and explain to her all this stuff about the Old Testament and who you are and the Messiah and this and that. But that's not Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a guy who's willing to have really difficult, even awkward, even painful, conversations because he knows sometimes those conversations are the very ones we need to get to the deep wounds in our heart. Listen to what happens here. She says yes. Jesus isn't looking for a surface level yes. And so he dives deep. Verse 16, it says he told her, go call your husband and come back. Okay, maybe he wants to witness to him too. She responds immediately, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five. And you're like, Jesus, stop. Like, what, what are you doing here? You're just, you just poking the wound here. He's like, you've had five husbands, and, and he just keeps going. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. And then Jesus gives the long pause. You ever get the long pause? You get the long pause where you just want to punch the person in the face and just say, why are you making me feel this? I mean, I don't know about you, but this seems like a jerk move to me. Like literally, if you're sitting at Starbucks and you're the table next to him and you're listening to this thing, just eavesdropping, and Jesus just goes there and he's like, you're right, you've had five husbands. You're like, you're a jerk. And then he says, and the one you're with, you're sleeping with, you're not even, you're not even married to That guy was probably like, well, she's been married five times. Babe, it'd be better if we just dated. I'm not getting married this time. Like, we don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know if she's, like, promiscuous. We don't know if she's got some wound and just needs security, and so she's just attaching on to any guy. We don't know if she's been widowed five times. In that culture, if, if, if a woman was widowed, then her brother would marry her to be able to take care of her, bring her into the family. I mean, there's all kinds of, we we have no idea, but what we do know is she's marginalized. What we do know is she's at the well at noon. Nobody comes to the well at noon because it's the heat of the day. The women, it was a social act. I mean, a social just conversation and hangout time. They would go at 6 or 7 in the morning, maybe 5.30, 6, 7 in the morning when it's cool, and they'd all go together, and they'd grab water, and they'd wash clothes, and it'd just be this social gathering And this woman, because of her past, there's no way she's showing up to that gathering. So she shows up in the heat of the day, hoping to meet no one, and she runs into a man named Jesus who happens to be the son of God, who happens to know her deepest wounds, and he presses in. He presses in. Because what Jesus knows is that wound just continues. If that issue is not dealt with, if it's not just brought out into the light of day, if it's not exposed to the air, wounds that are not exposed to the air never heal. And so what we look at, we look at this moment and we're like, dude, Jesus, you're a jerk. When you step back from the conversation to look at what Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing something incredibly compassionate. But he's also doing something that's incredibly difficult. See, the reality is this, is we live in a broken world. 
You get it. Like I've already just said, this woman had a wound and some of you are sitting there already identifying whether it's subconsciously or just your mind has already gone there, replaying some things. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's just an accident, a bad mistake that just had some repercussions that came back on you. Maybe it was an intentional decision that was sinful. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it has nothing to do with you, but it had to do with the sins of your father or your mother or someone else that just exploded onto you. You see, we all get this fact that we live in a broken world. The book of Romans talks about this idea how the world even groans, like it just groans because it's broken. Sin entered into our world and began to just mess things up. And at some point in our lives, sin enters into our world and it messes things up and it creates wounds in us. And for this woman, somehow it had to do with the relationships she had with men. Again, we don't know why. John doesn't describe what John just is saying is she had a wound. Jesus knew her wound. And Jesus knew that if she was going to be healed from that wound, it had to be exposed. And so he pushed in. The interesting thing is that the woman recoiled. If you have a wound, if you cut yourself, if you're, if you're hurt, if you have a burn, when somebody touches it, what do you do? When they go to touch it or it gets near something, you, you recoil, you retreat, you, you pull back. Why? Because it hurts. It's painful. When you touch a wound that's still open, that's still healing, it still hurts. And so what does she say? Jesus said, Hey, I've got living water. She says, I want that living water. He says, go get your husband. She says, ouch, I don't have a husband. And we do the same. Jesus says, I've got living water. You say, I want that living water. And if all it takes is for me to say, yes, I believe, and come to church on Sunday and and walk in and pray a few prayers and, and just be like, hey, okay, good. I, I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in Jesus. Understand, all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus and respond to him with faith and trust and belief. And it says that, that Jesus will receive us. But the issue with Jesus is when he has a conversation with you about faith and about your life and about transformation, what Jesus wants to do is take you somewhere. Jesus doesn't want to leave you at the well. He doesn't want to leave you at the different wells that you're trying to dip into and find water in that just keep you thirsty. He wants to take you and actually take you somewhere with him and begin to heal the wounds in your life and turn them from wounds to scars. What's the difference between a wound and a scar? A scar, you see the mark, you, you remember the memory of where it came from, but you can touch it and it doesn't hurt. It's not painful. Now, maybe the memory of that thing is a little painful. But actually touching it does not bring about the pain that causes you to recoil because you know that it's healed. And Jesus loves this woman so much, even though she's a Samaritan. Even though men didn't talk to women in public, he's like, no, no, no. I am compelled to go through Samaria because there is a woman who's got a wound in her heart that if I could just expose it, if I could just have a difficult conversation with her, maybe we could bring it out into the light of day and I could do something with it. Jesus says, you want the water? Give me your wound. 
What is your wound? What's the wound in your life that you recoil from? And what's the wound maybe in your life that you respond to Jesus in the same way and say, I, I don't have a husband? Like, what's your husband? Some of you women are laughing right now, going, yeah, that's my wound right there, that guy. <laughs> hey, sometimes we are. Figuratively speaking, what is it? What is your husband? What is your wound? Is it an abusive parent that always spoke down to you, that tore you down, that you've just been living a life ever since where you just want to achieve, 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 and you just, you're just searching for the approval of other people because you never received it when you were a kid? Or maybe you reacted differently and you just ran. You just run from relationships. Maybe it was a broken relationship with a man or a woman, and now just the wound that you have in your heart there, you run from relationships because you say, I've been hurt so badly, I don't want to ever feel that again, so I will never connect again. Maybe it's an addiction right now that you just pull back and say, oh, I don't have. Man, everything's fine. And you come and you, and you walk in these doors and you just like put on the smile and put on the good face and everything's good. And, but inside there's this 1% that you don't allow people to know. Matt Chandler's a pastor, famous speaker. He says this, he says, to be 99% known is to be unknown. Did you catch that? To be 99, I mean, that's a lot. 99% is like full to the brim. I mean, it's almost there. 99%, to be 99% known is to be unknown. What he's saying is there's 1%, and if you're hiding that 1%, there is 1% there that you will not connect on, that you will not allow people into. And for this lady, it wasn't 1%. It was like 65%. And let's, let's be honest. Everybody in the town knew about the 65%. Everybody in the town knew that she went to the well at noon because she didn't want to connect. And everybody knew she'd had five husbands. And everybody knew she was living with one. Half the time in our life, what we try to do is we try to hide the 1%. But most everybody knows. Because the woundedness in our life, it causes us actually to react to the world in ways that we think we're hiding. We, we think we're being really clever. We think we're really just kind of, people can't see this thing. And most people know. They may not know exactly what it is, but they know there's 1%, or there's 20%, or there's 35%. There's, some, there's something with that person that they just won't let me connect with. I remember sitting at a table at a restaurant with one of my best friends, his name's Jack, and I've told you this story before, and he looked at me and he said, dude, I love you, and I love working with you. He was an elder at the time and a friend, and we just connect, and I was like, man, I just connect with this guy. And he looked at me and he said, man, dude, you're hard to get to know. And I had no idea. And what he was saying is, I don't know what the 1% is, but what is that 1%? And I'm telling you, over the last few years, it's not just been Jack, but it's been my wife, and it's been a marriage counselor. It's been Alan Algram, one of my mentors, and, and Cal Jernigan, one of my mentors, and my covenant group, and others that I just was like, guys, I don't know how to do this, but there's 1%, and i got to figure it out. Because there's something missing. Timothy Keller says this. I shared it at Christmas Eve. He says, the gospel is this, to be fully known and fully loved. 
Most of us are like, we buy into the gospel part that we say, hey, Jesus fully loves us, but we're like, I ain't let him fully know me. And the problem is, is he's the one who really does know the 1%. He's the only one. He's the one that actually knows what it is. He knows who hurts you, why it hurts, and he knows how you recoil and pull back. And he's saying, hey, if we could just expose that husband thing, that abuse thing, that addiction thing, that, that dishonesty thing, that retreat thing that you do, then maybe we could have a different kind of relationship and maybe you could have a different kind of relationship with other people. Jesus pushes in, and this is not a jerk move. It's probably the most compassionate thing that Jesus could ever do. Jesus talked to Nicodemus and he looked at Nicodemus and he said, man, you, you're, you're like this religious guy who's like all perfect. Nicodemus, you still need to be born again because here's the thing. God does not identify with us in our goodness. God identifies us with us in the Samaritan woman conversation in our brokenness. Nicodemus is like, I don't even get this thing. He's like, yeah, because you're trying to follow all the rules and be just perfect. It's not about being perfect. It's about being broken before God and bringing that to him and saying, God, here's the 1%. Can you help me fix this? Can you help me work through this? Can you help me just understand this? And God opens up a section of our heart that we never knew even existed. Jesus goes on with the Samaritan woman, and it's interesting. He says to the woman, says, she says in verse 19 and 20, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Like our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Do you see what she did here? Jesus goes, hey, you want living water? Then go get your husband. She's like, I have no husband. He's like, yeah, you have five. Like, are we going to have this conversation? She's like, no, we're not going to have this conversation. Can I bring up this thing about worship? The big issue between the Samaritans and the Jews. Where do you worship, Jerusalem or on the mountain? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of that 1%, don't change the subject. See, what Jesus is trying to do in those moments is where it hurts and you recoil, is he trying to create a little bit of healing so you can receive more of his love and more of his grace. Jesus goes on and says, woman, believe me. The time is coming, and he's getting a little annoyed right here. It's like, we can get back to this conversation. He says, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come, saying, I've now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know. Well, okay, fine. I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In the climax of the conversation, verse 26, Jesus says, then Jesus declared, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Do you know in the book of John, that is the first time that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to anyone. This should just resonate with you because he didn't do it to Nicodemus. He didn't even do it to his disciples. 
He didn't do it to the crowds. He does it on a trip out of his way to find a Samaritan who's a woman who's got a pass to say, I am the Messiah. And if you'll give me your wound, you will drink of living water and never be thirsty again. That's right. Some of you, I just want to ask you, what are you hiding today? What are you hiding? Jesus wants to know and he's going to push in. He's going to keep pushing in. You will find moments this week or next week or next month where you just feel that, don't lean away. Because what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's pushing into something and asking you to acknowledge what that issue is. To bring it out in the light of day so it can be healed. My son, who's now 14, I remember when he was about five years old, we had gone back to Missouri. We were visiting my grandparents, and um, we had taken a trip back there, had a, had a ton of fun, and, and uh, we were coming back, and, and in Missouri, he, you know, he, we just kind of played outside, done some things. My parent, our grandparents had some land, and so we were back in the woods, and, and we were coming back, and we had stayed in, um, we, we had stayed in this hotel. And so we get back, and we're in this hotel, and, and all of a sudden, we wake up this one morning, and my daughter says, she says, hey, Mom, Dad, Jake's got a tick. He's got a tick. He must have got it in Missouri when we were playing outside. He's got, got a tick right back here. And it was growing. It had been there for a little while. We'd been back there for quite a few days. And, and so we're just like, okay, no big deal. We know how to take care of this. And so I, gra- I went down to the desk, and I, I got some matches. And I came back into, up into the room, and, and I just explained to Jake. I said, here, here's what we do. We're, you know, we just take the match. We, we light it. We blow it out. And then we stick it on the end of the tick, and the tick just, you know, pulls right out. It's, it's no big deal, buddy. It's going to be fine. Jake's five. I lit the match. He saw the match. And he's like, my father is going to light me on fire. He jumps up on the bed, like out of my arms. He jumps up on the bed, and he is flipping out of his mind. And my wife and I are so taken back because he is screaming bloody murder. We're like, what is going on? And we're just like, back up. We're just like, okay, it's okay, buddy. Blow the match out real fast. And... And he is screaming. We finally just get him calmed down and we explain again, buddy, it's going to be okay. I light another match. I'm telling you, he goes ballistic. My wife literally calls the front desk and says, hey, we are not beating our child. If someone calls you, just know we are not beating our child. Like, he's, it's a tick. We're, this is all we're doing. I mean, I thought somebody's going to call CPS on us. Finally, I hold the kid, cover his eyes. She blows out the match touches the back end of the tick, it pulls out of his skin and it's done and he's screaming and he looks and he breathes. And we're dying. We are sweating. We're like, and he's fine. That is the battle that some of you put up with God. When God's like, hey, I'm going I'm to light this match and it's going to look scary but then I'm gonna blow it out and I'm gonna touch the end of that wound. And here's the thing, it's gonna heal. And all Jesus says in scripture that you need to do to start is to identify the wound, what is it? Once you identify it, you begin to see it and see the reactions in your life of how you react according to that wound. Once you identify it, then you confess it. The Bible says confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you can be healed. The Bible also says, confess your sins to God 
And it says that he will purify you from all unrighteousness. You see, when we confess, what happens is the wound begins to lose its power in our life. When we acknowledge something and see it, we begin to react to it, and we begin to see how we re- We say, no, no, that's not me anymore. We identify it, we confess it, and then we have grace for ourselves because it takes a while for wounds to turn into scars. See, what I want to say to you today is just what are you hiding and what do you need to confess to Jesus to allow him to begin to do the work? What picture do you see of Jesus? You see, the woman, she saw immediately the picture of every man she'd ever been with. And she said, no, no, I'm not telling you my wound. But as she listened to Jesus and saw that he was a man who didn't come at her with judgment, but he was a man who came at her with grace. She eventually gave him that wound and she went and got the man she lived with. And not only that man, she went and got the whole town and the whole town came and she became fully known to Jesus and just put it all out there in front of the town and the whole town placed their faith in Jesus. Never underestimate what God can do, not only in your heart, but in other people's hearts when you allow yourself to be fully known. To give him the 1%. Now, what picture do you see of Jesus today? Here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Band's going to sing a song. I want to encourage you during that song just to take communion, to remember that Jesus, who is he? He's the one who loved you enough to come into the the middle of the junk of this world, your brokenness, stretch his arms out on a cross and to die for it, to experience your pain so you could experience his living water. I want to encourage you during that song just to get a picture of Jesus in your head, And then to that picture, that compassionate Jesus, give him your 1%. Take communion, remind yourself of what Jesus did to give his body and his blood. And then just say, Jesus, here it is. Here's my wound. Would you help me to start healing? And then when you're ready, you stand and you say, Father God, both campuses today, just want to ask you to heal the hurts that we have. Father, there are things that have happened to us that some of us that we didn't make happen, just happened to us. There's others of us that we've made some decisions that have had consequences on us and and other people. We're embarrassed, we're hurt. Help us to be reminded that you know the 1% and you want to heal it. Don't judge us. You just receive it and you exchange it for your goodness and your refreshment. So God, as we sing these words today, living hope, remind us that Jesus is our living hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray.